Let's pray again briefly. Lord, uh, David prayed that the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you. I would echo that for myself this morning. We echo that as a church. And Lord, help us to be focusing on the things that are important to you. Help us to have hearts that are ready to declare your greatness, your praise. And Lord, would you reveal the value and the worth of your son Jesus more fully to us this morning. In his name, for his sake, amen. We're going to start a new series this morning, seven weeks, relatively short. And if you've got a bulletin or a study sheet, you know that it's a bit of a strange titled series. It's called God Hates. God Hates. You know, hate is out of fashion. And hate is not a family value. Did you know that? And if you're from Topeka, Kansas, and you're connecting the term God with hate, you're probably thinking about an obnoxious group in West Topeka that has sort of redefined for people the use of those terms together that God would hate uh, that West Topeka group um, has been at this so long and so hard defining for the states, for everyone in this country, who and what God hates, that if you now come and you talk about God and hating together, you know that you're sort of rowing upstream. And so we want to acknowledge that talking about God and hate in the same phrase sounds a bit odd. So we want to step back emotionally and we want to see what the Bible says about God and hatred because God talks actually quite a bit about this. And that's what we'll be looking at. We'll take a particular passage out of Proverbs 6 to do this by. Uh, but we just need to step back emotionally and recognize that hate and God have become a laden package. We recognize that and we want to say we want to reinform our own thoughts and our own thinking on the use of hate in context of God. If you and I are growing as Christians, we want to love what God loves and the flip side of that is, and we want to hate what God hates. And that's actually the language of the Bible. Amos 5.15, when God was speaking to Israel through the prophet Amos, He told them He wanted them to hate evil and to love good. There's things that God hates and there's things that God loves. And at the end of the day, God loves those aspects of life, of your life and mine, that reflect His nature, His purpose, and His character. And on the flip side, God hates. God hates those things in life, in your life or mine, attitudes, thoughts, words, and actions that don't reflect God and His goodness, but reflect God's enemy, Satan's kind of lifestyle, purposes, and character. God hates some things. He's quite clear about this. Bottom line, we'd say something like, God loves righteousness, God hates sin. That's the kind of context, the kind of language that we're talking about. Let me roll down. You've got, by the way, most of what I'm covering, you'll have the biblical references for on your study sheet. God hates a bunch of things. And I didn't make this up. God said these things about Himself. God hates idolatry. He says in Deuteronomy 12 and 16, God hates idolatry, replacing God with a false god. God hates wickedness, Psalm 45. God hates the wicked, those who love violence. 
He hates with a passion. He says in Psalm 11, God hates pride and arrogance, evil behavior, perverse speech, Proverbs 8, robbery and wrongdoing, Isaiah 61.8, plotting evil, swearing falsely to each other, Zechariah 8.17. There's also rather strong language about things God uh, has an attitude towards where it says God abhors certain things. That's like hatred sort of at, at the next level. God says that He abhors deviousness, Proverbs 3.32. Uh, basically, uh, tricking others, deceiving others. God hates perversity of hearts, Proverbs 11.20. God hates, and this is more to the point in a group like this on a Sunday morning, God hates religiously hollow worship, He said, in Isaiah 1.13. You know, along that line, if you look at what God hates and abhors in the book of Ezekiel, God hates and abhors 41 times in that book. And God there is addressing His covenant people who are religious people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And to His people, He says 41 times, I hate and I abhor. And it's almost all tied to their religious practices and their idolatry. So we need to be very clear. God uses of Himself language that may have been hijacked, but still remains true because God said it. He doesn't change. He's eternally the same. And so we want to pick up on those clues He's laid down for us. God, we know some of the things that You love. That's typically what we're talking about. But we also want to be informed about what You hate. We want to hate the things God hates, love the things God loves. We're going to be in Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19, and I just want to mention something about the verses that precede that in verses 12 through 15. Proverbs talks a lot about the kind of people we should be and we shouldn't be, and also the kind of people we should hang out with and the kind of people we should not hang out with. And these verses that precede our study verses talk about the worthless man. The worthless man is the man that you not only don't want to be, you want to avoid. And the language about the worthless man is very, very similar to the verses that we'll look at this morning, starting this morning. And he he uses the same language about uh, this person with his body does these kinds of things. And the point I want to make here is when we get to the things God hates, if we don't hate what God hates, if we sort of latch on to those things and they're part of our life and our lifestyle, we look like the worthless person God's saying don't be like and don't hang out with. So this is important not only that we love what God loves, that's a good thing, but that we also have God's aversion, His hatred for things God says are not worthy of Him or those who follow Him. So we want to love God, love what He loves, hate what He hates. I'm going to read the passage that will be the influence for the rest of the study. And this morning we'll only get to the first of several things mentioned. But the text is Proverbs 6, 16-19, and I'm reading from the ESV. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And God numbers to sort of heighten our level of expectation here. Typically, if you see this, uh, this you'll see it in the Minor Prophets as well, you're usually going to the last point is the key point God wants to make, but He's numbering them so each one is heightened. Six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, 
a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. It's also important to note here on the front end, the things God hates here, He attaches to your body. You know, if I say ethereally God hates hatred, well, hatred is a concept, it's out there. It's not me. But on all these things God hates, He attaches them to you and to me and to our body parts. So God says He hates things you and I do with our mouth and with our hands and with our feet and with our actions. So God makes it very personal. We can't do these things God hates and say it's okay. We're doing them. They're attached to us. They're our words. They're the breath and the words that come out of our mouth, they're the actions we pursue. So God makes this very personal. He wants it to be personal for us so we can personally reject these things that He hates. So the first thing He says He hates there in verse 17 is, in the ESV, haughty eyes. Haughty eyes, if you're reading from the King James, it's a proud look. In the Holman translations, it's arrogant eyes. Arrogant eyes. Haughty, the term there used, means to rise up, to be high, to be exalted, to lift up. And haughty eyes, or a proud or arrogant look, is the visual presentation of pride. Have you guys ever seen this? Someone else do this, or have you done it yourself? You know, if someone says something and you don't believe them, or if you really are not enamored with someone else, do you tip your head back? And... You know why you do that? This is the haughty look. Because when you tip your head back, you are in fact raising your eyes. And you are elevating yourself and your opinion when you do that. And you're looking down your nose at someone else. You're elevating yourself. You're minimizing the person that you don't believe or the person you look down on. That's the thought. So physically, it's tied to what we do. You can see people do this. So I raise my head so my eyes are raised and I'm looking down. I'm elevating myself. I'm looking down on you or your opinion or whatever else it is. So this is visually what God's talking about, but the root of this is, of course, pride. We'd say God hates haughty eyes, but really what God's talking about is God hates pride. And pride is the sin of all sins. Pride, by definition, is a high or an inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether cherished in the mind or as displayed in bearing, conduct, etc. And of course, here in this text, God is tying the attribute of pride to our body parts, how we are expressing ourselves to those around us. Some of the synonyms for pride would be conceit, self-esteem, egotism, vanity, Vainglory. Pride is thinking too highly of ourselves or too often of ourselves. We're going to try and look at pride in a couple different vantage points so that we can get the application I think God means us to. But you know, <clears throat> if you've been or you've seen someone else, let's make it uh, someone else so that it's easier to talk about or think about. If you see a sports, a famous sports player, and all of life is about them, and they know how good they are, and they talk up how good they are, and they're doing the interviews, and they're saying how great they are. Uh, you look at them and you say, well, it's obvious. Every, all of life's about them. They're proud. I see that sin. It's easy to define because they're elevating themselves. 
But there's another way that we express pride, and it's not by elevating ourselves, it's simply by thinking of ourselves all the time. So you might be the person that says, you know, I realize I compare myself to others and I just always come up short. And I'm constantly thinking about my faults, not my, my strong suit, but my faults. And, and I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that and I'm always thinking about myself. And guys, that's the, it's the same thing. It's the flip side of the coin of pride. That's pride too. And why? It's not because we're making much of ourselves by affirmation. It's simply by virtue of how much we are thinking about ourselves, we are de facto the center of our universe. And that kind of pride displaces God and displaces others the way He means us to interact with Him and others also. So this isn't just that if I'm the braggart, I'm proud. A lot of us don't fall into that side of the sin, but we think about ourselves all the time. Even if it's negative, we are making ourselves the center of the universe, not God and not others. That also is pride. I've got a few quotes this morning by C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. I think some of the guys in the church are going through this now. His chapter on pride is worth the book. Just the chapter on pride. But among those quotes, he says this, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? Or refuse to take notice of me? Or patronize me? Or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Or ask yourself, how do I feel when someone else is blessed and I'm not? It's the same thing. My pride's in competition with your pride. Pride is all about me. Pride removes de facto God from His place in my mind, my thoughts, and my affections. And it replaces Him with an object not worthy of my worship, which is myself. Pride always displaces God with uh, a demigod. And typically us. We become the God replacement. And you know, it's impossible to... If we say, if we affirm that God says to love Him and to love others... Pride does not allow you to do that. If I'm proud, it doesn't matter which side of the coin that that gets reflected on, if I'm proud, I've displaced God from His rightful place in my life. I cannot love Him the way I'm called to. And if I'm proud, I cannot love you the way I'm called to. Pride does not allow us to do those things God says are most important. Pride displaces God. Pride displaces others as well. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Do you believe that? When we entertain pride, whether it's through the amount of time we focus on ourselves or through bragging, braggadocia, do you say, do you recognize to yourself in the moment that this is the thing God absolutely hates? What we're doing in that moment? That He hates it. God hates pride. If you're talking to a group of Christians about the sin of pride, most of us probably think that we're talking about someone else's sin and not our own. And so we're probably thinking about pride, as we've said, some, some very extroverted expression of pride, something that's very easy to look at and say, that's pride, that's proud, that's wrong. Yeah, I don't do that. And we'll talk about a couple elements of that. In Ezekiel 16, God was talking to the southern kingdom of Judah about their lack of faithfulness. And he compared them to the city of Sodom. 
Now, for religious people, this would seem really strange, wouldn't it? But he says in verse 49 and 50, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Your, your relative, the, the person you're like, is the city of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food, prosperous ease, didn't help the poor or the needy. They were haughty. Now, if you and I think of Sodom, it's almost always in the context of Genesis and its sexual immorality and its violence. But God says that the underlying sin of Sodom was pride. And it was gross pride that allowed this immorality and this violence to flourish. Pride was the underlying sin. Immorality and violence followed pride. We look at Sodom, we say, yeah, immoral, don't want to be like that. Well, pride was the underlying sin of that city. I'm using a couple of examples here uh, from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Um, historically, uh, Christians have looked at these passages and understood that they spoke past the individuals God is addressing in them to the spiritual power behind them. And that view has fallen a little out of favor these days. And so depending on the commentator that you might read or when that book was published, they may or may not agree with what I'm saying here, the application of what I'm saying. But I believe this still holds. That when God addresses the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 and the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, He is in fact using them, as it were, as a straw man. He's speaking to them and about them, but beyond them to the spiritual power that undergirded the kind of persona that they had become. So, speaking to the king of Babylon, and as I say, I believe beyond him, he says, Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now it's certainly true, kings in past ages, think of the pharaohs, Caesars, and others, they spoke of themselves in demigod status, but they were all born and they all died. And so we understand that this is speaking about an entity that goes beyond a born, lived, and died persona. That this is speaking about Satan. Stars in the Scriptures, by the way, also are often used symbolically of angels. You see that in Job as well. But speaking of Satan, the, the father not only of lies, but the father of pride. Satan, the father of pride, said things like, I'm going to become more than I am. I'm going to take God's place. Now guys, when we entertain pride, we're usually not saying, I'm going to take God's place. But in fact, that's what we're doing. If we think of Satan and we say he fell to the sin of pride, we say that's obvious, absolutely yes. But that's what we do at a, a perhaps a more minimum level when we entertain pride as well. Obvious in Satan Maybe less obvious to us, but it shouldn't be. Satan fell to the sin of pride. Ezekiel 28, addressed to the king of Tyre, God says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned 
So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. Your translations may read that a little different. Uh, covering cherub, I think, is another translation. A cherub is a kind of angel again. We're speaking past, as I say, I believe, obviously, the king of Tyre to the spiritual entity behind him. O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. See, if we think of Satan, we say obvious pride. Proud, absolutely. That's the easy one. And so, not only is Satan the father of lies, Jesus says, but he's the father of pride also. And we can't, we can't let go of that because we need to have that in the back of our minds so that we realize when we walk in pride, who we are aspiring to be like. It's not Jesus, it's Satan. Lewis says this too, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And guys, in this world, uh, Satan is called the God of this world, the ruler of this world that we live in. God is overall causing or allowing all things, sovereignly working all things out to the counsel of his own purposes, but underneath that, Satan is called the God of this world. And so this world reflects his value. So if you read in 1 John 2.16, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, ESV says the pride in possessions. I like the New American Standard there better. It says boastful pride of life. That's what is part and parcel of the world system you and I live in breathe in, grow up in. You and I are surrounded with the norm being to be proud and have pride as a key element in your life and mine. That's the norm. If you don't fight it, you're succumbing to it already. It's what composes this world and it's because this world is ruled by Satan immediately here. If that's the case, if we can look at Satan and say, or braggarts are the very obvious that entertain pride, and we say that's a bad thing, is it possible that there are forms of pride that we in fact think are acceptable or don't recognize as pride? And I'm asking the question because I think obviously there is. If we're successful in putting off the grosser, more obvious forms of pride, we still we'll find ourselves facing pride in every corner of life with every breath we draw. The temptation for pride for you and me is there in every nuanced area of life. Os Guinness, in his book The Call, says this, the devilish strategy of pride is that it attacks us not in our weakest points, but in our strongest. It is preeminently the sin of the noble mind. So I can be proud about my humility. I can be proud about my nobility. If I give myself to serve God night and day, I can be proud about my service. I can give all my money away to the, the poor to be godly and be proud about my godliness. That's what he's saying. That it's easy for Christians to fall into the sin of pride, but not thinking of ourselves as the braggart, but making much of things that we should ultimately ascribe back to God. We're making much of our humility, proud of our humility. 
And this is true, and I, I think for me, this is where I found myself caught up in pride. Lewis talks, last quote from Lewis this morning, but as I read this, I think that's where I've lived. Lewis says in part, it's a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices, pride, can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. God, it might be that in the city of Topeka, there's no prouder group than this group here right now this morning. That's possible. That pride finds a welcome home among the religious, among the spiritually minded. And that's what Lewis is getting at here. He says pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Think of this. He says uh, teachers, in fact, appeal to a boy's pride, as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity. Do you see how this plays out? I'm too good to entertain that sin of lust. That's beneath me. I'm too good for that. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. That's true. And this is where spiritually minded people like you and me, religious people will entertain pride in this way. That sin's beneath me. I'm too good for that. That's overcoming one sin, if you will, by another, and in in fact, worse sin. Pride informs every other sin. You cannot sin apart from pride because pride is an affront to God. Pride is a refusal to acknowledge who God is and to humbly follow, submit, and serve Him. Every sin is an affront to God based on pride. Pride is also the the precursor to every other sin we commit. I've got two examples uh, in the Old Testament uh, two kings, Second uh, Chronicles 26 and Second Chronicles 32. Our uh, Bible survey group had just finished going through Chronicles. These guys were fresh on my mind. Uh, Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26 and Hezekiah in chapter 32 were two of the good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. These were not bad guys. These were good men. God says of them they were a good king. They looked like King David. They, they aspired to be like King David. And when you read about King Uzziah on the beginning or the front end of his story, it says it's nothing but acclaim. It says he's a good guy. He's he's doing the right things. He's putting down idolatry. He's worshiping God. And it says that God honored him because of that. And you're like, this is great. Life is good. And Uzziah is a good guy. And then it falls apart. Verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26, when he was strong, and, and who made him strong? God made him strong. Paul says to the Corinthians, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, what do you have that you weren't given? When you and I are proud about our accomplishments, those accomplishments come from things God gave us, intellect and ability and energy and desire. We don't have anything God didn't give us. Well, God had given Uzziah favor. And he built him up. This was all God's doing. And when God did that, Uzziah was strong and he grew proud to his destruction. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This good and godly king becomes just like the rebels. Think back to 
to Moses and the Exodus, Dathan and Abiram, they say, hey, we're as good as you, Moses. We should be doing what you do. Or Miriam and Aaron rise up against Moses' leadership. Or wicked King Saul offers sacrifices he wasn't supposed to offer. And here Uzziah does the same thing. He goes into the temple. He goes to the place God says, you're not welcome. You can't come here. Only the priests. And he goes to burn incense. And when the priests confront him, these guys were brave because the king could kill you, of course, right? The priests run in and they tell him, what are you doing? Get out of here. And you know what his first response is? It's anger. That's more pride. And when he responds in anger, do you know, remember what God does? God strikes him with leprosy. And Uzziah lives a really long life and he's a leper. He's an unclean leper to the end of his days. He was a good man. He was a good king and he fell to the sin of pride. Same thing with Hezekiah. You know, in the mini pantheon of good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah is near the top. Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Those are the three biggies. Hezekiah is a great king. He's outstanding. Again, cleanses the land, restores the temple, practices Passover, gets rid of idolatry for the most part. And you know, he's coming to the end of his life and God says through Isaiah, hey, put your house in order because you're going to die. It's been a good run, Hezekiah, but your winded doubt's about done. And the text tells us that Hezekiah turned to the wall and he wept. And he prayed and he cried out to God. He humbled himself before God and he asked God, would you extend my life? I'm not ready to die. And so God sends Isaiah back in and says, hey, God says, I've heard your cries. I've seen your tears. I'm going to extend your life. And listen to this. Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25. So God heals him. says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. Why? For his heart was proud. The guys, is this crazy? This is the guy who moments earlier is crying. Could I live a little longer, God? Have you ever been there? You know, God, just please anything. You know, I'll say anything. I'll pray anything. I'll do anything. He's humble. He's pathetic probably, right? Like you and me. You know, God, please. And God says, okay. And what's his first response? Pride. And he didn't give thanks to God the way he should have. Yeah, that's me. It's all about me, Lord. I knew you'd see it my way. Thanks for coming around. And it says because of that, God's wrath was poured out on Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets the message. He humbles himself again. And God says, well, the wrath is going to be poured out after you're done. You know, we talk about the causes for the southern kingdom going into captivity. And we point to Manasseh, the wicked king. But part of it was Hezekiah, the good king. Guys, spiritually minded people, good men and women, spiritually minded people like you and me right here, We can go from the depths of despair and humility before God to pride, just like Hezekiah. This is not a sin that affects everybody else but us. This is where you and I live also. If you think you're not susceptible to the sin of pride, if you think you're above it or beyond it, that means you're already in it. This is the sin that informs every other sin in my life and yours. I hope you've got a study sheet. There's a little checkoff form there for you, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did when I took this. happy reading by the way this comes and i i have borrowed unashamedly from a booklet called from pride to humility 
by Stuart Scott. I had hoped that those would be here this morning. They won't be here till this next week. We're going to have them on sale. Four bucks. It's a reduced price. We just want you to get one. They'll be at the information table next Sunday. Get one. It's more information than we're covering this morning. It's lengthier uh, tests for you as well. But I've borrowed unashamedly in these questions from Stuart Scott's book. And again, please get one. Pick, please pick one up next week. If you can't afford a $4 book, uh, tell Patty to put it on my charge account, okay? So ask yourself some questions. <clears throat> Are you characterized by complaining? You know what complaining means? It means I'm so important I should get things my way. And if life isn't the way I want, that means something's wrong because I'm important enough that I should have it my way. Do you find yourself complaining regularly? Do you lack an attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude? Are you slow to say thank you either to God or to your mom who served you breakfast or to your husband or to your wife or to your friends when they do something for your benefit? Are you slow to say thank you? Do you just assume that's what they're there for? Are you an angry person? Now, I'm sure for every, especially guy here, when you get angry, it's righteous anger. You know, and that's me too. It's funny. Because my anger is righteous anger probably like yours is. I love that about us. But, you know, for a few others, maybe it's not righteous anger. And, you know, the Scripture, with, with rare exception, anger is a sin, Almost 24-7 for you and me. If we're angry, it's almost always, with a couple exceptions, it's almost always sin. You know what anger is like complaining? Anger says, how dare you do that to me? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know how important I am? How could you fail to do what I wanted you to do? Anger is all about pride. I've lived there. I know this sin personally. I speak from experience. Anger is all about pride. And man, will it bring you destruction. Do you know who Proverbs says to avoid? The angry man. There's a reason for that. Because anger will cook your goose. It will get you into trouble. Anger is all about pride. Do you focus regularly on your lack of abilities or achievements and lament it? This is back to we're not lifting ourselves up. We're simply thinking about ourselves all the time. That's pride also because all of life is all about me. I'm bad. I, I'm not this. I wish I was better. It's I, I, I. It's me, me, me. That is the essence of pride. I've diminished God. I've diminished others because just by context of time, life, my thoughts are all about me. Are you a perfectionist? I know some of you are, by the way. You know, perfectionist. I know a little bit about this one too. So perfectionists, we have an idol, and it's us. It's the idol of me. And, and if I don't measure up to my idol's image, then I feel bad about myself. So here's the idol of me. You can't see it, but I can. And so my perfectionism is driven by keeping that idol dusted and in good shape. And my perfectionism isn't about you, and it's not about honoring God. Now, we know we want to give God our best, right? That goes without saying. But perfectionism is all about me and the idol that I've built in my own pantheon. Do you talk too much? I know what you have to say is, is important. I know that what you have to say is more important than what anyone else in the world has to say at this moment. 
Do you talk over other people, by the way? You know, what I have to say is so important. You should just stop right now and listen to me. And then listen to me again and again and again. If you're a person characterized by always talking and especially talking over the top of others, that's pride. It's a lack of recognizing the worth of the people you're interacting with and respecting the image of God they bear. Their maker and them. It's both. Uh, do you need to be in control? Sorry, I'm going to have to hurry through a few of these. Uh, you guys do the rest of those, okay? Check them off and see where you land. Uh, what's the antidote to, proud, to a proud attitude? What's the antidote to pride as a sin that we all are tempted by all the time? What's the antidote to pride? That would be, of course, humility. Humility, by definition, a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance or rank. Humility is to focus on God and others free from self-absorption and self-focus. Humility, right apprehension of who I am and how God's made me and where He's put me. God loves, by the way, God loves humility. Humility is a garment that fits us just right. Let me give you some verses from this one. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. If you want to aim for honor in life, put yourself low and let God raise you up. Psalm 25.9, young Christian, I love this verse. God leads the humble in what is right. God teaches the humble His way. If you want to learn spiritual truth, if you want to say, I know what God says in His Word, God teaches the humble. Proverbs 22.4, I'm going to skip through some of these. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. This isn't always, by the way, about economics. Do you want a rich life? Do you want honor in life? Humble yourself and let God honor you. Don't do it for yourself. You let God do that for you. Isaiah 66.2 is a great verse. To this one I will look, God says, to he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. How would you like to know that God has my back? God's the one who says He's looking for me. There's a verse in 2 Chronicles, the reference escapes me. Um, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support the one whose heart is completely His. Well, the humble one has God. God has your back. God's looking for you if you're walking in humility to sustain you, to support you, to encourage you. To honor you, ultimately. But if we do it for ourselves, God won't do it for us. There's, uh, you know, as always, I find I have so much to say. What I have to say is so important. You know, it just keeps coming. I don't know. I'm going to wind down here. I'll just point out on your study sheet, uh, God values humility so much that if you've committed what is in your mind the worst of sins, if you'll humble yourself, you'll see that God will not only forgive you, He will restore you. The examples, we won't get to them this morning, Ahab in 1 Kings 21 and Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33. Guys, these are together. These are the worst kings in the history of Israel and Judah. By far, the texts are clear on this. They're the most evil, the most wicked. And do you know what God respects when each one of these kings humbles themselves before him. God forgoes punishment, delays it in the case of Ahab, 
And he restores wicked King Manasseh to his throne from captivity in Babylon because wicked King Manasseh humbles himself before God. When you humble yourself before God, there's almost nothing God will not do for you and your cause. The antidote ultimately, of course, is embracing the character of Christ in our life. You've got some verses there. Colossians 3.12 talks about that. I would point out from Matthew 5, Kent's teaching through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Proverbs 6, 16-19 is point to counterpoint Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. So, point in Proverbs 6, God hates haughtiness, pride. Matthew 5, verse 3, what does God love? He loves the poor in spirit. The humble, they are the ones who are blessed. It's point, counterpoint, Proverbs to Matthew 5. Uh, James 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, both quote Proverbs 3, verse 34, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If God says it three times in the Bible, do you think He means it? Do you think that might be an important point? Uh, last, you've got a test for humility also. How humble are you? That's uh, on the right side of your study sheet there. Check that off as you go home too. Do you trust God? By the way, faith is built on humility, is it not? You can't please God apart from faith. God is a God who cannot lie. He cannot lie. He's a good God. He can never do you wrong. God is a just God. He can never be unfair to you. Okay? When we trust God, we just do that which we should. Faith is built on humility, a right assessment of God and a right assessment of ourselves. Do you trust God? Is that the, the norm in your life? There's some great questions on there for you as well. But anyway, look at that when you go home. Check those off. And you'll probably need to do what, what I needed to do when I went through this study. I needed to repent deeply of pride. Pride is like a wicked dragon inside our own souls that routinely attempts to escape the bonds of the cross and the power of the Spirit and to breathe out its unholy fire consuming us and those around us in its destructive force. Guys, pride is always destructive. Latent or in the moment, pride is always destructive. And this is the deal. God hates the dragon of pride and we should too. Love what God loves. Humility. Hate what God hates. Pride. God calls us to slay the dragon of pride by repenting. And you'll find you'll need to repent and then repent, and then repent. And we instead, we want to replace that fire-breathing dragon of pride, right? With the character of the Lamb of God. Jesus, Philippians 2, Jesus preeminently the epitome of humility, the second person of the Trinity stepping down into our humanity, humbling Himself, and the text there says what? So that God could highly exalt Him. So we want to put on the humility and the lowly, lowliness of mind that Jesus displayed in the Incarnation. Father, would You help us to repent uh, as fully and thoroughly in the moment as we're able to as we look at this awful, God-denying, self-exalting sin of pride. Father, would You help us come clean to You and perhaps to others that we've sinned against through this sin of pride. Would You help us to love You, Lord, and love the things You love Hate the things you hate, Lord, starting with this sin of sins, with pride. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty name, Lord Jesus, and exalt you in the doing. In Jesus' name, amen.